Today we're going to pick up what we call some special issues in Leviticus. Most of what I've chosen to kind of focus on is the connection between Leviticus and Christ, between the sacrifices in Leviticus, Christ's sacrifice, um, and then we'll look at some other issues involving uh, Christ and Leviticus as well. So the first section that we have here on the front of our paper is Christ's sacrifice and atonement. The first uh, section that we looked at in Leviticus was the section of sacrifices. There were animal sacrifices, there were grain sacrifices, there were sin offerings, burnt offerings, trespass offerings. We looked at all of the different types of offerings and how specific these offerings were to be offered, the reasons they were to be offered. And we thanked God several times that we did not live back in the times where we had to offer animal sacrifices. But the question is, why don't we have to offer animal sacrifices? I mean, it's in the Bible. God commanded it, didn't he? So if it's in the Bible and God commanded it, why don't we have to offer sacrifices today? Well, the truth is found again through the New Testament. And the way that I have come to interpret all of Scripture is to interpret the Old Testament in the light and in the revelation of what the New Testament teaches. So we start with Christ, we start with the New Testament, and that sheds light on how we interpret the Old Testament. Uh, so to interpret these sacrifices, we start with Christ, His work, and what the New Testament says about Christ that connects us back to Leviticus. So we see here under Christ's sacrifice and atonement that Christ fulfills the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus and brings them to an end with his final complete sacrifice. Uh, and several of the scriptures we're going to take out of in this section comes from Hebrews. It's good to have a working knowledge of Leviticus so you'll understand what Hebrews is talking about. Uh, so you can almost read Leviticus and Hebrews side by side, especially when it comes to the priesthood, when it comes to the sacrifices, when it comes to the high priest. And that's mainly what we're going to look at today in the section of Christ. And a lot of the scriptures are going to come out of Hebrews. So if you want to understand what Leviticus means for us as Christians, it's good to read the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews was written to Israelites concerning the things that were written in the law to show them their true meaning. So to begin in this journey, we're going to look at the offerings. Uh, one of the first offerings that we looked at was the burnt offering. Uh, the sacrifice focused uh, for the burnt offering was, was focused on, first of all, perfection. And you see this in several of the animal sacrifices, not just the burnt offering. But you had to have an animal that was perfect, an animal that was without blemish, that had no imperfections, that had no deformities, one that was absolutely perfect. The burnt offering expressed adoration, total devotion, total commitment, and complete surrender to God because the, the whole of the offering was consumed. All of the offering was consumed to show complete surrender, commitment, and dedication to God. Jesus fulfills the burnt offering. Uh, you know, the burnt offering, first of all, had to be a male without blemish, without spot. Christ was that offering. The, 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 they had to be examined oftentimes. Uh, and even when, you know, remember when Jesus was having his unjust trials, when Pilate examined him, he said, I can find no fault in this man that you would want to crucify him. We're told that Jesus is the lamb without spot and without blemish, that he had no sin. Uh, Jesus offered himself voluntarily as a substitute. Jesus was the one who was wholly dedicated to God and his will to atone for sin. A lot of times when you hear preachers use the types and shadows of the Old Testament to preach, they talk about how you know, we should be a, a, a holy, complete, surrendered, burnt offering. And it is true, we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. But the only one who was completely surrendered to God, completely devoted, completely committed, in thought, word, and deed for his whole life was Jesus Christ, which makes him fit to be the burnt offering. Offering wholly consumed and given for us. 
The second offering we see here is the sin and trespass offering. Uh, The purpose of this offering, the sin and trespass, was the forgiveness of sins and cleansing from defilement. Jesus, as our sin offering, took our sin upon himself, that we may be forgiven and cleansed from our sin. All of the sins and trespasses were transferred to the Lamb, and the person who sinned could walk away free from all sin and guilt. So the way that we deal with our sin as Christians is not to bring a sin offering, it's to receive the offering of Jesus that he made on the cross 2,000 years ago. We see some scriptures down here, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, how Christ, how he appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, sin offering, sin sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, the perfect lamb, to be sin for us. He made him to be sin for us. Galatians 1.4 says, who gave himself for our sins. John 1.29, behold, John the Baptist says, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. 1 Peter 2.24, He bore our sins in His body on the tree. So the New Testament makes absolutely clear that Jesus' death was a offering for sin. It was a sacrifice for our sin. He did not have any sin to atone for for himself. But he took our sin and he died as a sacrifice for our sin. Uh, These offerings had to be offered continually. Sin offerings had to take place all the time, all the time, all the time. But Christ's offering was a once for all sacrifice. This makes Jesus a better sacrifice than the sacrifices of the Old Testament. This is what makes Jesus' blood that was shed better blood than that of the Old Testament. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Uh, we still have the study through Hebrews uh, you know, up on our YouTube page. You can go back and listen to that to get you know, more in-depth details. But the, the purpose of Hebrews is to show these Jewish people that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices, that he is greater than all of the figures in the Old Testament, that he is, has a better priesthood, he's a better high priest, a better sacrifice with better blood, with a better covenant, and that all of the things in the Old Testament were just a shadow and a prefigure of Christ who is the reality and the substance. So the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Jews who are familiar with Leviticus to show them God's plan wasn't Leviticus. Jesus is God's plan. Leviticus and the law was to lead us up to Christ, who is the complete sacrifice for all. So the, uh, so the weakness of the old covenant sacrifices is that, number one, they can never take away sin. They can only cover sin. Number two, they were only a temporary covering for sin. And number three, they had to be offered continually over and over and over again because they were not good enough to take away all sin. But the difference in Jesus' sacrifice, he is a once for all sacrifice. When Jesus was sacrificed, he reached back in the past to everybody who had lived back to Adam. He reached in the future to everybody that would live, and he took the sin of the world upon him, and he was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. As John says in 1 John chapter 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not for ours only, but for the sin of the world. He was made sin. He took humanity's sin upon himself. He took the sin of Adam that affected all of humanity on himself as a sacrifice for that sin. And in one offering did what none of the other offerings could do, total and combined. So in Hebrews chapter 9, 24, uh, it says that nor that he should offer himself often. And it contrasts in Hebrews chapter 9, offering often sacrifices as the Old Testament with the once sacrifice. And in Hebrews 10, 11, and every priest stands daily offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, 
which can never take away sin. But Christ's sacrifice didn't cover sin. It didn't temporarily cover sin. It completely took sin out of the way to free us from shame, to free us from guilt, that we're not walking with an ever-reminded sin consciousness that we have been cleansed and renewed and perfectly clean by Jesus Christ who became our sin offering. It's so important to understand what Jesus did for us as a sin offering. Then we have down here the grain offering. Uh, grain offerings accompany burnt offerings. Uh, this was uh, you know, made of flour, oil, frankincense, salt. Uh, Jesus presents himself as the bread of life. This was a bloodless sacrifice, but yet Jesus offers himself uh, as the bread of life. The peace offering provided a communal meal with meat for the priest and those giving the offering. Remember, they, uh, the peace offering was you know, the, the community cookout. It was the, the party that they would bring the sacrifice and they cook it and eat it and they would have fellowship, the people with the priesthood. Uh, the peace offering, Jesus fulfills that by showing that he is our peace offering. He brings reconciliation. He brings peace between God and man. That word reconciliation is so very important. You know, and, and I don't remember, you know, I'm sure it was taught again. I, I sat on the back row and, you know, drew, drew in the bulletin every week when I was a kid, but I don't remember many sermons about reconciliation. I remember having the impression that God was always mad at me but I never was given the impression that God was happy with me and liked me and was pleased and I had peace with God. Um, so, you know, um, there was never this peace in people's hearts uh, because we don't fully understand that Jesus was our peace offering and made reconciliation. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies of God, God reconciled us to himself. He, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he, he reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation that we are to go out and preach that Jesus made peace. Romans 5, therefore having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have access into this grace wherewith we stand. Jesus made peace between sinful man and holy God through his death, thus bringing peace and making communion with God possible. Thank you. Was that? He did away with the backyard barbecue. Did away with the backyard barbecue? I don't know. <laughs> uh, and then we have Day of Atonement. And of course, Day of Atonement was the most holiest day of the year. Uh, this was the day when sin could be atoned for for a whole year for the whole nation. First had to be offered for the priest himself, the high priest, uh, and then the sin offering for the people. Um, if you remember, when we talked about the Day of Atonement, we said that there were two animals involved, and these were two goats. One goat would be sacrificed as a sin offering. The other goat, the, priest would, the high priest would lay his hands upon the head of the goat, confess all the sins of the people, and that goat would be sent off into the wilderness, never to return, to symbolically show that as the sins of the people were atoned for by the sin offering, they would be carried away from the camp and not be held against the people. What we see here is that Jesus fulfills both of these animals uh, in the Day of Atonement. Together, these goats represent how God deals with the sins of his people. Number one, by providing a sacrifice for and number two, the putting away of sin. So Jesus, as a sin offering, was crucified and died for us. And because of that, carried our sin away, took our sin away. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice was, first of all, not a yearly sacrifice, again, like the Day of Atonement, but was a one-time sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 says, By his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. When the high priest, if you remember, when he made the sacrifice, he would take the blood, and this was the only time he could enter into the Holy of Holies. He would take the blood and he would sprinkle it upon the Ark of the Covenant, upon the mercy seat, thus making atonement. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus entered 
into the holy place, not on earth, but in heaven. He entered once into the holy place, not once every year, once, and obtained eternal redemption for us. So this was an offering. This was a day of atonement that did not have to be and does not have to be repeated again and again. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 says, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. The remembrance of sins uh, made every year. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says, But this man, after he made one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So Jesus made a one-time day of atonement sacrifice, entered once into the heavenly temple to present his blood that obtains eternal redemption for us. And then secondly, Jesus acts as our scapegoat who carries our sin away or who takes our sin away. Again, not just to cover our sin, but to completely remove them. Like the scapegoat, Isaiah 53 says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Uh, the scripture also says that he, he puts our sins to his back. He drowns them in the depths of the sea, never to be remembered again. And then in the new covenant, he says, Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's what makes the good news so good and why Christ's sacrifice shows us as the ultimate sacrifice. Um, when uh, Lisa and I, for our, I think, 15th anniversary, um, we went on a cruise. First time we went on a cruise to the Bahamas and it was neat in the room. They had the little TV in the room and they had a channel on the television where you could see a map of where you are. If you've been on a cruise, you've probably seen this, a map of where you are and how deep the water is below you. And when I figured up, I had to figure up, because it was like, how many ever meters deep or whatever, and I had to figure that thing up. And then I had to figure up how deep that was. And it was like, at one point, we were there, you could stack like three Empire State Buildings under us. And I was like, okay, yeah. Okay, that's, that's really, I mean, I've been on top of the Empire State Building too. We went to New York on the 10th anniversary. I've been on top of the Empire State Building and I was like, okay, let me look down over there. Okay, let me back up. I saw it. And I don't like heights at all. But to think that three times that was how deep the water was below us, miles and miles deep below us. And then I was reminded of how God drowns our sins in the depths of the sea and how there was no way I could jump in that water and go, there and go down to the bottom of that sea and retrieve my sin. And that, that was a, a picture to me, because I, I always see pictures and related to the Bible. It's a gift and a curse, but you know, sometimes, sometimes I can't enjoy anything, but um, you know, I'm always preaching to myself. So I was thinking, there's no way I could go to the depth of that sea, miles and miles down, and retrieve my sin that God had totally drowned. He took our sin away, and He became the scapegoat that carried our sin, where we could never find it or retrieve it again. And that's, that's how complete and total Christ's sacrifice is to us. So, you know, be, be a, find, find, find your hope and your comfort in that of what Jesus did for you. Secondly, on the back of page one is Christ's priesthood, which follows, you know, these sacrifices because it was the priest that made the sacrifices. So there are two main functions described in Leviticus. Uh, first of all, is the office of the priesthood, and then it was the office of the high priest. The book of Hebrews declares that Christ is our high priest, and he is also a, pre, a high priest of a better and greater priesthood than the earthly priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. Um, I put these in quotes, but I, I want to read some of these. Um, and there's a better priesthood with a greater high priest because of several reasons. And you can find these in the book of Hebrews. Uh, first of all, Jesus, he, he there means Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices for his own sin. The high priest, before he entered into the most holy place, had to first of all offer sacrifices for his own sin. 
to make sure he didn't die when he went beyond the veil, and then for the sins of the nation. Well, Jesus did not have to do that because he did not have any sin. So in chapter 7, verse number 27 of um, Hebrews chapter 7, I'll, I'll read verse 26. Uh, for such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heaven, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once when he offered up himself. So he did not need to make sacrifice for his own sin because he had no sin. Secondly, Jesus is a forever priest because he does not die after, like earthly priests. Earthly priests were born and they died and then the next generation came and born and died. Next generation came and born and died. Well, Hebrews chapter 7, 23 says this, they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue or allowed to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continues forever, because he lives forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. When Jesus died and rose again and became our high priest, never to die again. So his eternal life means he is an eternal high priest, therefore a greater high priest than the earthly high priest who died. Number three, he offered a better sacrifice than the earthly high priest. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 13, it says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much better is the blood of Jesus than the earthly animal sacrifices. So he offered a better sacrifice than the earthly priest. Number four, he entered into the true tabernacle to sprinkle his blood. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now of the things which we have spoken of, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not man. And then you go over to Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 24, and it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now appear in the presence of God for us. So the picture is that there is a heavenly tabernacle, that the earthly tabernacle was patterned after the heavenly and Jesus didn't enter into the earthly tabernacle to carry his blood. He entered into the heavenly tabernacle in the very presence of God to bring his blood as an offering for us. So he entered the true tabernacle, not the earthly tabernacle. Number five, he is the high priest of a greater priesthood and of a better covenant. The, pre, the high priest of a greater priesthood and of a better covenant covenant. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11 says, If therefore perfection came by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not to be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity a change of law also. In Hebrews chapter 8, 6, but, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which is established upon better promises. So, first of all, most of the New Testament comparisons between the Day of Atonement and the death of Christ emphasize the access to the most holy place. Christ entered into the most holy place for us and then when he died, when Christ died on the cross, if you remember, the curtain of the temple, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Christ, our high priest, entered by his own blood. Um, unlike the uh, ironic priest he, that had to enter every year, Christ entered heaven itself once in the presence of God, redeemed us by his blood, and opened up the way to the most holiest that we can come and draw near to God, that we can approach his throne of grace boldly. So Christ tore the veil. He atoned for our sacrifices. 
and he welcomes us into the presence of God. A new and a living way was made for us to approach God. Because if you remember, we had to go through the levels. The high priest could only, he was the only one that could go into the holy place or the most holy place. The priests were the only ones that could enter the, the holy place with the lampstand and the table of showbread and the altar of incense. The people could come to the outer court, you know, only if you were atoned for. If you were unclean, you couldn't come in the camp, you were kept about. So there was these levels that the holier you were, you could approach God, but the least holy you were, you had to stay far away. Well, Christ made atonement for all of us, became our sin, that we could become His righteousness, tore the veil that we can all have access into the presence of of God, And again, not just that we could come to a tabernacle, but ultimately that he would make us a tabernacle where the Father would dwell in as well. Um, so Jesus is a greater high priest, but this is very important, something that we don't talk about often in church because it seems kind of disconnected. Uh, there's a, a name we don't understand and we really don't talk about it. But as far as understanding who we are as Christians, it's kind of important. Uh, so that last paragraph under Christ's priesthood says, as far as the general priesthood goes, now we know that the priesthood was the tribe of Levi. Aaron was the first high priest, and those from the tribe of Levi could serve as priests. Well, here's an issue that Hebrews talks about. Jesus, who is called our high priest, first of all, is not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, naturally, Jesus has no legal right to be a priest because he's of the wrong tribe. So what, how is this remedied? Well, it's remedied because of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. The priesthood was changed. The priesthood was changed. The Levitical priesthood was a priesthood made up of those from the tribe of, of Levi, and again, they lived and they died and they served and they offered temporary sacrifices in an earthly temple. But Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi, but yet he was a priest. He offered sacrifice. He went into the most holy place. He went into a heavenly tabernacle, a greater tabernacle, with better blood, a better sacrifice. How could he do that? Well, it's very simple. God changed the priesthood. So God ended the Old Covenant Levitical priesthood, and established a new priesthood. But this priesthood is alluded to all the way back in Genesis by a mysterious figure that's mentioned in Genesis, Psalms, and Hebrews, and his name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up after Abraham's victory, and Abraham comes up to this man of Melchizedek, who interpreted means the king of Salem or the king of Jerusalem. And he gives tithes of all the spoils that he just won. Abraham does. He gives tithes to Melchizedek. Showing, first of all, that whoever this Melchizedek was was greater than Abraham because Abraham is paying tithes of his spoils of victory to Melchizedek. But then it's not until Hebrews that we find out that this Melchizedek was symbolic of a whole priesthood. A priesthood. His name being interpreted in Hebrews chapter 7, the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, the king of peace. So God, Hebrews tells us, establishes a new priesthood, not after the Levites, but after Melchizedek. Melchizedek, we're not told of a beginning. We don't know his father and mother. We're not told of his end, of his end of life. So therefore, we don't know his beginning. We don't know his end. We don't know if he has a beginning or an end. So therefore, he's seen as eternal. So the Melchizedek priesthood is seen as an eternal priesthood. And Jesus is a priest, not after earthly Levi, but after heavenly Melchizedek. So God changed the priesthood. And when the priesthood changed, verse number 12 of Hebrews 7 says, then you have to change the law. Because the law was given to the old priesthood. And that means you're under an, another covenant. So you had the old covenant with the Mosaic law, with the Levitical priesthood, 
which has been superseded by a new covenant with a new law under a new priesthood. One that is an eternal priesthood with a heavenly tabernacle and sanctuary, which is Jesus Christ. And he shows us here in Hebrews how this priesthood of Melchizedek and Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood because it goes on to tell us in 7, 9 through 14 that the Levitical priesthood who received tithes of the people, that's how the the Levites were supported by the tithes of the people. So the the Levitical priesthood received tithes. But the writer of Hebrews says that actually the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priest, paid tithes to Melchizedek when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, for they were inside the loins of Abraham, showing that this priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. God changed it. He changed the priesthood, changed the law, made a new covenant, and established Jesus as the eternal high priest, doing away with the old order and establishing a new order under Jesus Christ. Again, um, you know, that's something that's kind of difficult to grasp at first, to, to understand. You know, we seem so disconnected from those ideas, but ah, I'm not going to go there. Nope, not today. Uh, so Christ priesthood, a greater priesthood, an eternal priesthood, which supersedes the old order priesthood that has been done away. Okay, I'll go there a little bit. You know, so (laughs) while Israel is still trying to establish a priesthood and trying to find Levites and all this stuff, God's moved on. That's all I'm going to say about it. God's moved on. All right, Christ holiness. I got to get through this. Christ holiness. Um, A large theme of the book of Leviticus is that of holiness. Of course, because you had to be holy to approach the presence of a holy God. And if you were unholy, you couldn't approach the presence of a holy God or bad things happened to you, as we saw in the book of Leviticus. So the Israelites had to achieve a level of holiness through the offerings, the sacrifices, the cleansings in order to approach the tabernacle, in order to worship God. The continual defilement of sin means a continual state of sinfulness, which meant a continual cleansing and atonement that was needed. Get that last sentence. A continual defilement of sin means a continual state of sinfulness, which meant a continual cleansing and atonement was needed. Instead of repeating the same pattern of sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, if I sin, I got to make a sacrifice, if I sin, I got to make a sacrifice, if I sin, I have to make a sacrifice, the way to holiness for the Christian is not through our law keeping, it's not through our offering a continual sacrifice, but the way to holiness for the Christian is to be declared righteous in the sight of God through Christ. He opened up the way to the holiest for all. So the theological words that we describe this is the word justification, the word righteousness, the word sanctification, the word holiness. Uh, These are words that we use, and they all lead and describe this idea of, of holiness. So I just want to read through these words. First of all, righteousness. Righteousness means being in a state of right standing with God. If you're unrighteous, then you're in a state of unrighteousness before God. The Israelites, through sin, were unrighteous, and the world, apart from Christ, stands before God in its unrighteousness. But to get in a state of being right with God and having peace with God and everything between you and God okay is through Christ in which we are made righteous through His blood. So under, in Leviticus, you either achieve righteousness by, number one, keeping all of the law and not becoming unclean and doing everything the law says, which they broke the law all the time. So then they had to make sacrifices for the sins they committed, and for the sins they committed, they didn't even know they committed because there were so many laws. So they became unrighteous until they made sacrifice or made cleansing, and then they entered into a state of righteousness until they sinned again. 
Then they had to make atonement, go through the purification process in order to be righteous again. And then when they sinned, they became unrighteous. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of Christians live today. And that's where a lot of Christians' mindset is. We think we're righteous as long as we've asked for forgiveness. But then if we go out and sin or we go out and do something, then we become unrighteous, we're separated from God, and we have to go back and essentially make atonement again for our sin. And many Christians still live in the same sin sacrifice, sin sacrifice cycle as they did in Leviticus. But Jesus sets us free from the sin sacrifice cycle because he was the one sacrifice which took away our sin. So therefore, as John writes in 1 John chapter 2, I write unto you that you don't sin, but if anyone does sin, what does he say? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So when a Christian sins, he does not, listen carefully, when a Christian sins, he does not lose his position of righteousness because our sin has been atoned for with Christ. Now, now when we sin and you know, we realize that, should we acknowledge Jesus and his sacrifice? Yes, we should. Should we draw from the Holy Spirit you know, to, for, you know, to overcome what may be hindering us? Yes, but let me say, emphatically, unequivocally, when we sin, it does not negate our standard of righteousness that Jesus atoned for us for. You are absolutely as righteous on your worst day as you are on your best day. Because in the new covenant, righteousness is not achieved. Righteousness is received. And if you're in Christ, the only way you can become unrighteous is if Christ becomes unrighteous. He that knew no sin became sin for us that we would become the righteousness of God in Christ. The believer has the righteousness of Christ. That means we are just as righteous as Christ, not because of our works, not because of our achievement, but because of Christ's blood. Let me say it again. You are just as righteous on your worst day as you are on your best day. Because your days don't determine, Christ determines our righteousness and standing before God. So 2 Corinthians 5, 1, He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And it's like we know this, but I've been doing this for 20 years this year, and I've been talking to Christians for 20 years, and it's amazing how so many Christians I've known have sat in church all their life and still have no assurance still feel guilt, still feel that God is angry, still feel that they're separated from God, still feel that they're unholy, still feel condemned. We haven't really internalized what Jesus has done for us and who we are in Christ Jesus. And, and that's attributed to we have a mix of law and grace still in the church today. We still have a mix of you know, things from the Old Testament that we've mixed with things of the New Testament. We have a little bit of Jesus thrown in, but we have some condemnation over here and some unworthiness here. And, you know, we have Jesus is mixed in somewhere, but he's not the center of it all. And what I want to get us to see is that Jesus is the center of it all. You died. Here's the reason you can't be unrighteous. It's because the unrighteous you died with Christ and was buried with Christ. And the new creation you created after Christ was risen and lives today. The old you is dead. And that's a fact, Jack, for whoever Jack is watching us online when I post this. That's a fact. And that's what we need to be grounded in. So I've kind of found that a lot of Christians are not really grounded in the truth of the new covenant. We have some truth of the new covenant, but then we've still got a lot of leftover stuff that we've brought in and we've mixed it all together and we don't know from day to day where we stand with God or if he loves me or if he doesn't love me or if I'm righteous or, or I'm unrighteous or if God is here or if God is away or if God is angry or if God is pleased. And I've known Christians that have been in church all their lives that unfortunately get toward the end of their life and come to me questioning if they're truly saved, questioning if they're good enough, questioning if their heart's really right. There's 
this I'm sure but not sure kind of thing. Because somehow in the back of our mind, we still think, well, if Jesus' thing don't work out, I need to make sure I'm good. <laughs> you know, just in case it comes down to me, I need to make sure I've done what I have should or I've lived right or I've done this. It has nothing to do with what we've done. It has everything to do with what Christ has done. Y'all can't get me off on this. Why did y'all do that? I just... And we're going to be talking about that because I'm just going to go ahead and clue y'all in. Um, starting in a couple of weeks in June, we're going to do a summer series on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night. We're, we're going to have a Wednesday night for a church-wide thing for six weeks in the summer, talking about what it means to live in God's grace, what all these things mean. Um, Sundays, we're going to be calling it Captured by Grace. Um, and it's, it's to ground Christian because I've come to find out it's kind of like we know these things, but we really aren't living in them or see ourselves this way. So it's going to be a, a summer of, of being captured by grace here uh, at the church. So anyway, righteousness. Justification. Uh, justification means to be declared righteous. You don't become righteous. You are declared righteous. Um, you are declared not guilty. The judge declares you not guilty. Um, the declaration and pronouncement of God over his people who have been made righteous on Christ on behalf of Christ's work and justification righteousness is not achieved, but it is received. I've told this story before. I don't know if I've told it here or not. I don't know if y'all remember, it's probably been, what, 10 years ago now, uh, the trial of Casey Anthony. You know, her little child went missing, um, and then child was discovered. Now mom's on trial. I remember Lisa was staying home uh, with Alexa because she was real young, uh, and so every day, Lisa watched the trial, and I'd come home at lunch, and we would just like watch the trial. You know, we watched it every day with the testimonies, because we had, we had a child about that age, and you know how horrifying it was that a mom could possibly do this. And it's like, we know she did it, you know. However it happened, we know she did it. But I remember the day that verdict came down, we were watching the verdict, and that verdict came back as not guilty. Not guilty. On this woman, and, and oh, we were so mad. Lisa was so mad. She said, turn the TV on. I don't even want to watch it. Turn the TV on right now. I can't believe that. And I watched. And he, again, here's one of these other moments that God don't let me live down. Okay, we're watching that. And you have this judge up there, and I can see it in my mind. He calls her to stand before him. And the verdict has been read. And he says, I judge you to be not guilty. And I'm like, this is injustice. She did it. She's guilty. But with that judge, with the verdict of the jury and the judge declared over her, I judge you to be not guilty. In the eyes of the law, she was not guilty. And God said, hey, that's you. That's you. I know you're guilty. I know I'm guilty of sin. But because of Jesus, the judge looks, the eternal judge looks at me and he says, I judge you to be not guilty. In the eyes, in my eyes, in the eyes of the law, you are not guilty and you are free to go with this charge not counted against you. That's God's grace. It was injustice on her behalf. But spiritually for me, because of what Jesus did, because he took my penalty on my behalf, he stepped in in his mercy and took my judgment upon him. I was guilty. He took my judgment. He took my place. He was judged, and the judge said, Michael, you are not guilty. You can go free with this charge, not against you. That's justification. That's righteousness. And that's an amazing picture when you put it in the perspective of, yes, how guilty we are against God and what Jesus did for us. Um, sanctification uh, means to be set apart. It's when a person or item is clean and fit to the use of worship and work. Um, many Christians believe sanctification is a process whereby the believer becomes more and more sanctified over time. Um, and it is true, while we are continually growing in our righteous walk, it does not negate the fact that we are sanctified in Christ. And we are, people don't like this term and I use it, but we are totally perfected in Christ. Um, not through ourselves. So Hebrews 10, 14, by one offering he's perfected forever those who are sanctified. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Jesus has become for us our righteousness, 
our holiness and our redemption. So he is our holiness. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, it names all these sins and says, such were some of you, but you were, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So while, there is an, while it's true there is an outworking of righteousness, there is an outworking of holiness and sanctification that's expressed through our walk in the Spirit, it starts with the fact that you are. You are justified, you are sanctified, you are righteous, you are holy. You know, so the, the, new, the old covenant command, be holy for I am holy, in the new covenant, we are. Because our holiness is God's holiness. Um, another theme, I'm not going to read through this. Um, I want to, but I want to just finish up here. Clean and unclean. We know there were laws against what is clean and what is unclean. There's clean and unclean meats. There's clean and unclean people. If you touch something that's defiled, you become unclean. If you're a leper, you become unclean. Um, if you, were, if you were a eunuch, you were disqualified from coming in the assembly, unclean. If you had a deformity, you were unclean. Basically, in Christ, when you're cleansed by Christ, all those labels go away. Uh, you can read through that. Uh, Jesus touches lepers. So in Jesus, under the Old Covenant, if, you touch, if you're clean and you touch an unclean thing, you become unclean. In the New Covenant with Christ... If you're unclean and you're touched by Jesus as clean as you become clean. Jesus wasn't afraid to touch lepers because he made the unclean clean. Uh, Peter's vision, God said, don't call unclean what I've cleaned. Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing's unclean of itself. Um, but it goes on to say, but if somebody holds the conviction of something being unclean, then don't be a stumbling block to that believer. Um, Acts 8.36, where the eunuch under the Old Testament was disqualified, uh, the eunuch comes to faith in Jesus Christ in Acts 8, and he says, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing. Nothing hinders you. Nothing hinders you. And then finally, uh, the last section, Christ and the other laws. Christ and the other issues. Uh, there are many other issues and laws in Leviticus that we can look at, such as holy days, laws against certain cultural elements, such as mixing fabrics, tattoos, cuttings for the dead, laws against certain sexual activities, such as incest, adultery, homosexuality. How do we interpret these laws? Um, well, there's four ways Christians have interpreted, or three ways, and then one way we should. Number one, uh, some Christians hold, uh, do everything Leviticus says. Uh, and I put down here, of course, it's the Bible. It's all written to us, and we're supposed to keep everything literally from Genesis to Revelation, right? No. Um, but I've heard that. You know, this is God's Word from cover to cover. We're supposed to keep it. We're supposed to do it. It's all God's Word to us. Well, that's a very, very oversimplification of the process we've been trying to go through for a long time here on Wednesday mornings to rightly divide the word of truth. Um, so no, we're not supposed to do everything that it says just because it's in there. And then you have the other end of the spectrum. Well, Leviticus is Old Testament. We don't need any of it. We can just tear it out of the book and it has no value to us at all. Simple. Leviticus doesn't apply to us anymore, right? Okay, forget about it. You know, as we've seen, there's much to glean out of Leviticus and it plays a vital role in understanding even who we are as Christians and how God's and the principles of how God's people were supposed to live in the world. So that's an oversimplification too. And then number three is where a lot of Christians live. Well, we'll keep some bits of it and we'll disregard other bits of it. Well, we should just pick some things that we like and keep those while others we don't like, we just won't keep, right? You know, well, we just pick and choose at, at random. Okay. I like this one. Don't like this one. Like this one. You know, that's how a lot of it is, but that's probably not a good way of interpreting Leviticus at all. So maybe, number four, we should take the whole of Leviticus as revelation to us as Christians that reveals things to us, not as regulation. Yes, Leviticus is not our law. Leviticus is not our covenant. Never has been. That is absolutely true. So it's true, yes, Christians are not bound by anything in the book of Leviticus. But we should judge it by what is revealed through Jesus and the new covenant. Again, we interpret Leviticus based on the light of what the new covenant shows. And we could talk about so more. We, I want to talk about Jesus being our Sabbath. You know, we're not bound to the law of a Sabbath day, but Christ is our Sabbath, Hebrews chapter 4 says. Um, you know, so there are a lot of things. There's the letter of the law. And then there's the spirit behind it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, the letter kills. If you try to keep the letter of the law, the letter kills. 
but the Spirit gives life. So there's a Spirit behind the letter that we are to search out. So Christians are not lawless. We're governed by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So we judge Leviticus and interpret Leviticus by what's revealed through Jesus and the New Covenant. Just because we aren't bound by the law doesn't mean we are lawless. We're led by the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth and righteousness. Uh, We're told in Ephesians to put on the new man, which after Christ is created in true righteousness and true holiness. So yes, holiness and righteousness do play a part in the Christian, but here's the difference. We're not trying to be... We're not trying to do righteous and holy things in order to become holy and righteous. We're made holy and righteous. Therefore, we do righteous things as led by the Spirit and what's revealed in God's Word through Jesus and the New Covenant. So all those things play a part. But again, it's not bound by Leviticus, but it's the Spirit. You know, even Jesus said, you know, um, he said, you know, you've heard of the law. You know, do not commit adultery. He said, so the law says don't commit adultery, but there's a spirit behind the law. So Jesus says, I see into you not even look with lust. Don't even let lust control you. And if you don't let lust control you, adultery won't even be an issue in your life. So it's not about the letter, but about the spirit of the law. Um, you know, and then I added down here. So now the reason why I avoid sexual immorality, etc., is not because of Leviticus, but it's because of Jesus. It's because of what's revealed in Jesus. So, you know, there is a place to interpret Leviticus and to learn from it. And I mean, there, as I was typing stuff up, I was erasing things that we couldn't handle in everything. But there's so much in here that, you know, points to the New Testament. So, you know, I hope something that has been said, you know, has been eye-opening to you and pointing to Christ and pointing us to our life in Christ and in the Spirit.